0: I'm Peter Dow. And this is Direct Left on Call-In. Uh, if you haven't signed up for the newsletter, please do so at directleft.com. Um, so we have a, a new guest today, Matthew Ho, who's running for Senate in North Carolina, this Green Party candidate. Matthew, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, I respect you so much. I love the race that you're running. You and I have talked a couple of times before, uh, but welcome. And thanks for being here. Uh, if you haven't used Call-In before, you just have to unmute yourself. Um, there's a lower right little microphone icon.
1: Hey, Peter, thanks so much for having me here. It's great
0: to, to be joining you guys. I appreciate it. Wonderful. Well, let's just get going. Um, so, Matthew, tell me more. You know, there are a couple of things I wanted to talk about uh, to both you and Jason today, one of which is the uh, January 6th committee hearings. Um, you know, I, I I titled this particular episode, The State of Politics from an Anti-Establishment Perspective, because I think both of you are anti-establishment candidates. Um so, because we haven't heard much about your race, Matthew, you know, tell us more about you, a little bit about your background, about the race you're running, and, uh, you know, some of the positions that you hold, and then we can go from there and talk about some current events. So, the floor is yours.
1: Hey, thanks, Peter. And it's, it's a real uh, pleasure to be on with Jason. I, I really admire uh, his campaign and, and what he's doing, you know, out there on the West Coast, uh, what he represents and and who he supports. Um, I'm a, a, I'm here in North Carolina running for the U.S. Senate. Uh, we just uh, we just went through a ballot access campaign to get the North Carolina Green Party recognized as a political party in North Carolina. Uh, so we 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 got over that hurdle of getting out there and collecting tens of thousands of signatures, and that was a great experience um, in, in the sense that. We were able to, to do something that folks said couldn't be done by grassroots. They said you'd have to bring in petitioning firms. But we had support of Green Party and socialists and leftists and independents all throughout North Carolina. And we collected the signatures we needed. And doing that, it reaffirmed our decision to run this campaign um, to get the North Carolina Green Party recognized. Because we just encountered, as we were out there for the better part of two and a half, three months, talking to again tens of thousands of people the desire for something different the desire for political change the desire uh to upend you know what for way too many people is a is a deadly status quo so you know my background um you know i i was part of the establishment for quite a long time i was in the marine corps for 10 years i was at the state department um I've, uh, since 2009, been part of the anti-war community and have worked in Washington, D.C. through a think tank, uh, you know, uh, working with Congress and and others in terms of trying to do uh, something about the wars, about our foreign policy, about our human rights. As well, then, too, I worked as an activist, uh, most especially with groups like Veterans for Peace and Code Pink. And uh, last year, uh, the North Carolina Green Party said, hey, we want to get back on the ballot get recognized uh would you like to run as a candidate for us and so seeing um the opportunity presented uh the 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 urgency of the moment um you know the the urgency of what's coming with the climate collapse uh you know i think we made the right decision to run and like i said we've been greeted by that type of enthusiasm so uh, i'm really pleased to be here and uh yeah look forward to talking with you all
0: Wonderful, Matthew. Yes. Uh, similar to uh, Jason, um, you know, you've been part of the some of the Democratic Party operation um, in, in your state as well. But you're also an anti-war activist. Jason, uh, there are a lot of parallels with you and Matthew, correct?
2: There are. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I am, um, I'd say, affiliated with Code Pink in, in, in the way that I have taken their no money from the war machine pledge. Um, and it's interesting, I think Matthew and I connected, uh, uh, after a conversation he had, was it Katie Halper, um, about, about the C, about the, um, drug trade, um, and the government involvement in the drug, drug trade. And I uh, noted in a reply tweet to him, a a book that I had read, uh, called the CIA and the politics of heroin. And so I think that's where Matthew and I connected, but yeah, I mean, um, Right now I'm I'm really excited that the Green Party uh broke through in North Carolina. Kind of an unexpected place you would think um for them for, for the Green Party to to get themselves established. But I think Matthew's a great candidate. And yeah, I think we're we're right down the line on on just about every issue.
0: Excellent. So so what I wanted to do, guys, is um I wanted to talk about current events from an anti-establishment perspective, right? Because similar to, to you, Matthew, as well, of course, I worked within the establishment for a long time and eventually came to the realization that we've got to knock it down and replace it if we really want to make any real change. And so I think you know we're all sort of converging on this, this point of view and all coming at it from different angles and different backgrounds and experiences, but landing in the same place. And I think one of the perfect... Um, examples of how one views U.S. politics from an anti-establishment versus a more traditional establishment perspective is these January 6th committee hearings. Now, I haven't really been watching the hearings. I've been reading more about the news and seeing the clips and stuff because there was a time when I would, you know, be glued to something like this as though it's really going to change things. And now I'm in a place where the contradictions um, are just too glaring for me. So I want to throw a couple of, uh, of, of these contradictions as I see them. And I want to get, uh, hopefully, both of you will have a, a perspective on it. For example, there's this refrain you'll hear from the Democratic leadership and then rank-and-file Democrats and voters and liberals that the de- the Republican Party is a threat to the Constitution, a threat to democracy, right? And And that's, <laughs> it's true. The problem is what I what I what I can't square here is why leading Democrats when Trump was president were somehow enabling everything he was doing, funding ICE, funding the, the, war, the, the, the crimes against humanity, basically, that that Stephen Miller committed at the border. Uh, Nancy Pelosi pushing to give Trump more sub- surveillance powers with the Patriot Act, pushing for it and on and on and on. And then no consequences for any of Trump's thugs once he left office. So now you have these hearings and, you know, I'll hear a lot of uh, sort of Democratic establishment defenders and voters like, oh, my God, we're defending democracy. And uh, this is so important. And the fate of, you know, this country hangs in the balance. I think to myself, you're out there supporting Trump and you're saying positive things about Republicans. You know, I I continue (laughs) the past three, three episodes in a row. I keep repeating these quotes that that I've that I've uh, dug up from Nancy Pelosi and Biden and others You know, saying great things about Ronald Reagan, great things about the Republican Party, uh, rehabilitating George Bush. And now, and this is what I want to get comment on. I'll go to you, Matthew, first. It seems to me these hearings have just become an opportunity for people like Mike Pence and others to start looking good in contrast to Trump. So they're essentially rehabilitating themselves by just not being as god awful as Donald Trump. And I just can't believe this. Now we're we're rehabbing and and, and sort of repairing the image of these heinous Republicans who served with Trump. Matthew, what do you think of that? Uh,
1: You know, the thing I I think about most is just I recall back, uh, you know, almost 40 years ago to the Iran-Contra hearings, um, you know, and I was uh, 13 or so when those happened. And just a juxtaposition between um, how slick and how manufactured these hearings come across uh, as opposed to those hearings. And of course, those hearings are on contra were, you know, meant to replicate Watergate. You know, I mean, so it wasn't like there was wasn't some form of political opportunism going on as well. Uh, But, um, you know, it's just what comes out of this is what I keep coming back to, Peter. Like what what is availed of this? What changes are going to come? I mean, Watergate brought us uh uh, quite a a dramatic amount of changes including right a constitutional amendment if i remember correctly uh you know as well as that led into uh the church hearings we had investigations and opening up on the intelligence community all kinds of things with this in addition to like you were describing this rehabilitation of republican figures who don't need to be rebuilt rehabilitated they need to be in prison um you know the idea though is is what comes of this? What, what, where do we go from this? What what structural changes come out of it that allow for our nation to uh, you know move forward in a manner where we don't have another January sixth? And particularly with the, with the Congress, what I'm looking for is okay what are you advocating for that would would strengthen, expand, make our democracy more inclusive? What will you do to ensure that we don't have this type of anger percolating? But that's not what they want. What they want is protection of the establishment. They want, I think, a Republican Party that they can run against, fundraise against. That uh, is the, the other half of the seesaw. That is the two party system. Um, So, I mean, maybe I'm being overly cynical. Um, Maybe, uh, you know, I'm I'm not uh, giving a a benefit of a doubt like I should. But I I really look at this. And and, and while there was a great crime on January 6th, uh, there are very real things that need to be addressed about it. My concern is like when I see today uh, the head of the commission say we're not going to stop these hearings to help the Department of Justice out. You know, we're not I mean, like that type of there's not even an effort, as far as I can tell, for a cr- criminal case to be made after these hearings. Um, you know, then what is it all for? And so that's I, I, I fall on the same camp as you do.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and Jason, to go to you, that's a, that's that is the point that Matthew's making. What are the consequences going to be? And I, and I do want to state this for the record. What happened on January 6th was an attack an assault it was murderous it was deadly it was horrifying and it was a terrible heinous thing and a deplorable and condemnable and i could keep going so at no point ever would i ever excuse it or minimize it but the question at hand is Is this just a charade? Is this just theater, political theater? Because people like Pelosi and Democratic leaders are masters of political theater. So, Jason, what do you feel about that? Well,
2: I, you know, I agree with what you said, and I agree with what Matthew said, and I do think this. I don't, I don't think. um, I I, I mean, this is this is political theater because I don't know that anybody reasonably thinks that anything is going to come out of it. Uh, We do not have a history in this country of holding. The wealthy, the powerful, the politically connected, uh, accountable. And there's a couple. So there's a couple things I wanted to say about this. Is one is um, calling Mike Pence uh, an American hero. Is that? I think that's what uh, Mike Pence is easily as bad. Poli- I mean, if we look at who is on the Supreme Court right now, um, and the things the Supreme Court uh, is is pushing forward right now. That's that's Mike Pence's agenda. So we cannot freak out about the uh the things that are going on with the supreme court without also saying that's what mike pence wants those are his judges he is equally as dangerous as trump in different ways um but equally as dangerous uh and, and the theater part of it i mean if you remember within days of the january sixth uh event cory bush had a resolution written and she got no support. She had a resolution written to hold accountable to do investigations virtually immediately on the 112, I think it was, uh, members of the Republican Party who would not certify, who would not vote to certify the elections uh, in various states around the country. Uh, and she and and they were uh, part of the incitement of what happened on January 6th. And Cory Bush had that resolution written to hold those uh, uh, members of the Republican Party accountable. And she got zero support from Democratic Party leadership. Um, so, yeah, I do think that there's uh, just a ton of political theater about it. Uh, Liz Cheney is awful. Um, Mike Pence is awful. Uh, and, and if they are what Nancy Pelosi wants as a strong Republican Party, you know, I don't want that. That is not not in line with with my thinking. Of course, I'm oppositional to the Republican Party anyway, Um, but we have some very real problems in this country that need solving for the working class, for poor and marginalized communities, and they are not getting done. So
0: um,
2: in all appreciation of the seriousness of what happened on January 6th, um, I don't think anything's going to come about from it. Uh, and, And I think that that the American people, you know, and maybe a lot of Democrats also will walk away from the lack of accountability, uh, even even more jaded about uh, what, the, what the Democratic Party is trying to do sort of writ large. I, you know, that's, that's where I am.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Jason. I, and you raise the issue of Liz Cheney. You know, I tweeted uh, a couple of days ago, just did a little bit of research and found that Liz Cheney voted with Trump 93% of the time. OK. And Liz Cheney is now a hero to many liberals and, and, and sort of establishment or corporate Democrats. And this just, you know, as somebody who, like you, you know, opposed the Iraq war, marched and protested, you know, seeing the Bushes and the Cheneys just get all this love from Democrats is is just like it's difficult to process. Right. You know, so, so, Matthew, to to go to a larger issue, right, as a Green Party candidate, you know, I, I, I take a look at the two parties and I take a look at the frustration around the country. So to me, I've always, my main fight has always been with the GOP because you know, I was a lifelong Democrat and, and and it's the far right that I've always wanted to fight and oppose because I think it's the most dangerous, sort of most violent component of our culture. But of course, we also see how this duopoly, this sort of two party farce perpetuates all these horrible policies. So Matthew, talk to me about voters who are disengaged because they're just opposed to both parties. How do you think about them? And you have a sense of history, right? You've followed politics for a long time and you really have a good sense of you know, how we've gotten here. How do you feel about the, the hundred million who didn't vote in the last presidential election just because either they were disenfranchised, disengaged, disconnected, or for any other reason? How do you reach them? How do you talk to them? How do you think about them?
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I, think, um, I, I think that's what we have to keep coming back to, uh, the urgency of, of now, the seriousness of now. Um, you know, one of the consequences of this political theater is that it drowns everything else out. So, uh, say, Julian Assange's extradition uh, to the United States, which was approved today by the British uh, government, I mean, that has besides the injustice and the crime of what's being done to Assange, the um, danger that that uh, that that entails for uh, free press, uh, uh, freedom of speech, first amendment protections, et cetera, in the United States by the prosecution of Assange is something that will have decades long consequences for us. You know, and I I don't think it's going to be it will have the attention. Uh, similarly, a few days ago, there was a, a National Academy of Sciences releases a, a study uh, that finds that a third of those who've died from COVID in the United States have died because of a lack of health care. That, as I was corrected, and this is the appropriate way, our for-profit health care system killed about 335,000 people uh, during the COVID crisis. You know, I mean, and that just not reported, not, you know, you have to go to Democracy Now or Common Dreams to find that. So, I mean, I, I think some of it is when you get to this, this idea, the hundred million people who don't vote, the biggest voting block in America, most times or most elections are non-voters, those kinds of things. You have to realize, I, th- I think the attitude that they're apathetic, that they just don't want to be involved is not, not, not correct. You know, I, I what I see is, is this feeling of being pushed out. Uh, of not, not being apathetic, but being uh, excluded, uh, that whatever you uh, believe or do or, or want is not going to be reflected in what comes from the ballot box. And, I mean, that has, has taken, um, and particularly in its modern form, decades to coalesce. And I think with a, two-party, with a two-party system, I think what we saw with January 6th is a natural consequence of the two party system, you know, an identity type system of red versus blue, a a team system where there is no issues based voting. There is no voting based upon your political or economic philosophies, upon what's best for your community, uh, but rather based upon your perceived identity, again, as either red or blue. And I think that makes more likely uh, things such as uh, January 6th in the future. And so, you know, when you're out there talking to people and getting, um, signatures like we were and, and seeing that the effects that, um, these policies have on people and people understand that and they feel it, feel it. And the reason why they don't vote though, is because they feel it's not going to be of consequence that the system is stacked against them, that neither party has their interests. I mean, and there's a lot of other reasons too. I mean, we know people don't vote because they can't get time off. You know, they, they can't get off of work. They're not able to get there. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there's all those consequences, too, that are baked into a system that hopes to exclude people. I mean, I, I really do believe that, uh, you know, voter suppression, both the Democratic and Republican Party's versions of voter, voter suppression are meant to exclude as many people if they could, if they could get to the point if the RNC and DNC could get to the point each where the only people allowed to vote were people who had Fox News or MSNBC subscriptions, they would be extremely happy. I mean, so understanding that, that, um, you know, we have a lot of work to do to counter that, to counter the real effects of government policy on people's lives that they feel have been imposed upon them by a system that doesn't represent them, um, is yet trying to make this case that, OK, we do, as you said, Peter, we have to uh, not just take not not take control of it, but tear it down and rebuild it.
0: Those are excellent points, Matthew. And I, I wanted to pick up on something you said and kick it over to Jason. Uh, you, you talked about Medicare for all, but you also talked about what a propagandized society this is. And that the two major parties and who essentially serve corporations at the highest levels um, you know, really, they would prefer to have a population that 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 fits into the worldview or the box that they want them to be in. And, and and but but here's what's interesting. And to you, Jason, what are you guys doing in Washington state for Medicare for all? You are organizing with a bunch of others. And if you tell us more about it for Medicare for all um, at the local level, at the yeah. state level. So t- well, tell us more about that.
2: Sure, it's. Uh, I'm on the board of a of a volunteer group called Whole Washington. Um, we are running a ballot initiative, and this is actually our third ballot initiative for essentially the same bill. Um, that is a uh, a single payer bill. It's. You know, I have to be careful about that because some people out there say, well, it's not truly single payer uh, and it's, you know, the federal government's not doing it. So it's not really Medicare for all. But, you know, uh, I I sort of couch everything in, in that at the state level, this is as close to Medicare for all as we can get. Um, and it is paid for by, you know, taxation, higher taxes on the rich. Uh, but the reality is, you uh, uh, Universal healthcare, where everybody is covered for all the services that their doctors say they need, and and private insurance is cut out of it. Um, there are a ton of cost savings there. The very first cost saving is, of course, you're not you know taking that fifteen percent of your of your um, uh, expenditure and and putting it in a CEO and shareholder pockets, um, and so that allows uh, you to pay your providers more, like the actual providers, the doctors, the nurses, and so on. Um, you can pay them more but the other massive cost saving is the fact that people can go to the doctor and get the preventive care that they need so that um you know medical conditions uh that you know often go undiagnosed and untreated for a long period of time uh, and then turn into full-blown uh medical emergency conditions for people that are then very expensive uh we stave off a lot of those just just because People can feel comfortable going to the doctor, knowing that they're not going to get bills on the other side of it. So um, it's a it's a great bill. Uh, it would essentially parallel Medicare for all. We would we would certainly love for the federal government to get its act together and pass Medicare for all. Um, that would be the ideal you know, thing that we would have it all across the country. Everybody has it. Uh, but we are fighting for that here. In in Washington state, uh, we actually had a courageous state senator uh, who has also um, supported a state bank bill for us for capital projects, Um, and uh, he has introduced it twice. Uh, Of course, our state legislatures are uh, in the pockets of the for-profit health industry also. So they have not given our bill any consideration. Um, in fact, the uh, now retiring chair of the House Health Committee uh, uh, said last year that if, if a if a bill like ours came across her desk, she'd throw it in the trash. Um, but these people, I've done I've done the deep dive into their into their funding, um, and of all the members of the. House and Senate health Committees here in washington state uh, they 've taken over two and a half million dollars at, at for state level races you know combined two and a half million dollars from The various pharmaceutical hospital associations, medical associations, you know, health insurance, of course. Um, Mm -hmm. So we've got a corrupt system at the state level. Uh, But but we are we have been organizing for years around this. Um, We've got to get four hundred thousand signatures. And if we can get our signatures um, with our great uh, uh, volunteer crew who are going out uh, day after day after day, collecting signatures, knocking doors, um, hitting up events. Um if we can get those signatures, our bill will be on the ballot, and then the people will get to decide and and I think i I would say to anybody listening to this if your state because I think only half the states in the Union have this ballot initiative option that that for any number of issues, not just health care but for any number of issues that you see your state government failing on, uh, find out if you can run a ballot initiative of it uh, on it and put it in front of the people.
0: That's excellent. Excellent work, Jason. And let's take a a question or a comment from Mason. Mason, if you just want to unmute, if you have any questions for Matthew or Jason. Um, Yeah. Okay, so I was wondering, uh, out there on the campaign trail, I've spoken to Jason before, but I'm wondering from both you guys, um, number one, what's your outreach to people who are Republicans? Because I, I don't see a lot of that from people on the left especially from regular Democrats, it's kind of they write them off as these crazy right wingers. So I'm wondering, first, um, what's your outreach to people who are Republicans? And second, um, and this one might even be a little bit harder, is what's your outreach to people who don't normally vote and people who do sit at home because they feel like there's there's no getting past um, the two party system and stuff like that? Uh, Matthew, you want to go first? Thank you, Mason, for the question. Appreciate it. Uh, Matthew, you want to answer and then we'll jump to Jason.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Mason. Um, yeah, outreach to Republican voters. Uh, you know, North Carolina is a, uh, a, a relatively split state. We'll we'll, we'll elect a, a Republican senator and a Democratic governor in the same year. I mean, so that that's that's you know, and um, in terms of voter registration. It's roughly one third, one third, one third between Republican, Democrat and unaffiliated. So um, it is a divided state, though, in the sense of being a red blue. You know, you certainly know uh, when you're in the rural areas and when you're in the more suburban or or urban areas. Uh, And, you know, I've heard this a lot. And it's something we've talked about quite a bit, because while certainly there are those uh, in the Republican uh, camp who are fall under the nationalist banner, who fall, who are Trumpers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are many who are there because of the realities of their lives, the realities of their communities. You know, I, I, I think constantly, and I, I speak constantly about the uh, roughly twelve and a half million uh, Obama twenty twelve voters who either voted for Trump in twenty sixteen or sat home. You know, and and it's something like eight or nine million of those were people who switched from Obama in 12 to Trump in 16 and the reasons why they did so. uh, It wasn't because uh, of, you know, a great liking. I mean, there are there there are real reasons behind that. They were suffering. Lives are difficult. uh, And they're seeing the the result of government policies um, that have, uh, you know, deliberately uh, squeezed every dollar to the top. Right. I mean, that's been the, that's been government policies for as long as I've been alive since so the Nixon administration is to ensure that money goes to the top and workers and their families, the middle class, uh, lower incomes are continually uh, being squeezed. You know, the idea is pay them less and sell them credit. Right. I mean, so these are these people. Just because they live in rural areas have the same issues they have the same and, and so it's it's listening to them, getting out there uh making sure that that they know that we are an option and that we are a universal based uh, uh, we, we have universal based ideas that we are not blue, we are not red, that when we talk about things such as housing, healthcare, education, and jobs as human rights, that extends to all people. It's not means tested, it's not limited demographics, but that it applies to all people and that these are programs meant to provide a foundation. You know, this economic bill of rights we talk about as part of a larger Green New Deal is meant to ensure the success of all communities, uh, whether they are rural, or not. And so, you know, these are communities in North Carolina that are hurting Uh, about half of North Carolina's counties are losing population. um, And those are all rural counties. And we have some very poor counties here. Um, And some of those rural counties are white, some of those rural counties are black, some are on the coast, some are in the mountains, you know, I mean, and, but they all, um, they all have the same type of need that we believe our platform can provide. And the idea is just getting out there and talking to them and maybe not so much talking, but as listening.
0: Thank you, Matthew. And also, uh, Matthew, we're going to we're going to wrap soon. I like to keep these relatively short. Also, it's a Friday night and I'm sure everybody's exhausted from a long week. Um, Before we go to Jason to answer Mason's question, Matthew, where can people donate, uh, go to your website? How can people support your campaign?
1: Yeah, thanks for that, Peter. Uh, The website is MatthewHoForSenate.org. Last name is spelled H-O-H, and it's four as an F-O-R. And, yeah, you know, the the 2020 U.S. Senate race in um, North Carolina, they spent uh, $300 million on that race between Tillis and Cunningham. Uh, Expectations are a similar amount will be spent this year, possibly, maybe more. So, yeah, we're up against a leviathan. We really are. And uh, any support people can give uh, is, is really, really
0: needed. Wonderful. Thank you, Matthew. Jason, if you wanted to respond to Mason's question. Also, yeah. Jason, where, where can people support your campaign too, Jason?
2: Oh, sure. Call for Congress, C-A-L-L-F-O-R, congress.com. Um, uh, I mean, obviously in the same boat, uh, running a fully grassroots campaign, don't take any corporate PAC money. So we're actually starting to gear up for, um, you know, what our staffing needs might be to to, to run this thing through to November. Uh, very excited about that. But certainly any donations would be appreciated. Um, and if anybody's listening to this in-state, please sign up to volunteer. Help us put signs up. Help us canvas. Um, so, uh, but I appreciate Mason's question. Mason, it's uh, good to hear from you. Um, uh, but it's a good question about the voters, because, you know, we've 35 percent of my district uh, uh, at least um, identifies as Republican. Um, and I actually, you know, we are taking an approach like the traditional Democratic Party approach to voter outreach is to go where they know their bases and to just remind them, hey, we've got an election coming up. Uh, vote for us. In fact, I, I I ran for state party chair in 2018 uh, on partly on the message that we need to make sure that we are doing outreach into communities that we typically write off. Like, uh, I'll give people an idea in Washington, Jay Inslee's our governor. We got 39 counties in, in Washington state. Inslee only won nine of them. And he's governor because those nine are the big population bases. And so the Democratic Party doesn't invest in going into these other places uh where it is they just think they can't win or it takes too much effort and i think we've got to make the effort to reach out to rural communities so whereas if i was you know sort of a democratic establishment candidate uh i would have my voter list that came from from van you know van the voter database and it would say call this person call that person and, and whatnot and i would um uh, uh, I would not be reaching out uh, outside of, you know, that sort of traditional, uh, these are likely Democratic voters. What I'm doing is I am knocking every door, we will go to precincts, and we will knock every door and we will drop lit in every door and so we end up having a number of conversations uh with people who are more conservative and you know the trumpy people uh they don't want to hear us a lot of them are just very angry with the democrats and they want to they want to uh rail on joe biden in an angry way and and we are like you know we're, we're not we don't want to take that kind of heat um, but people who are really interested in sort of having conversations and are more independent minded, and um, we will we talk about issues that are affecting them because they're affected by healthcare issues. They're affected by the fact that their kids can't afford to go to school. And so there are real crossover issues there. And the thing that they really like about me, if we engage on those things, um, is that I don't take corporate money because they recognize that our system is co-opted by corporate money, regardless of which party. Um, so we do have an opportunity for those for those good conversations. But um, as Mason noted, uh we also run into people who who basically have the opinion that it does not matter who i vote for nothing's going to change um so the conversation that i have there is give me a shot register registration in washington state is online um and so you can just go to the secretary of state's website uh and and you're you're registered you just put your information in um And I, and I tell them, I will give you something to vote for. You know, I don't take corporate money. I'm not captured by the establishment. Um, even, even if you don't vote for anybody else on the race, I think I'm worth voting for. Um, and I've gotten some people to sign up. I've gotten some people to tell me I'll go ahead and register. Um, because you are clearly like in conversation and the things that we talk about. Uh, and the and the my willingness to criticize the establishment of the Democratic Party, um, they have told me that they're willing to give me a shot, and I think those are the conversations that really show people are uh, they are desperate for change all over the spectrum.
0: Yes, absolutely, Jason. Um, you know what I want to say is I want to conclude with this. Last week we had Michaela Wilkes, who's another great candidate. I've certainly come to the conclusion myself that we really can't solve our problems, the systemic problems, without a much more dramatic approach, which is really to overturn this 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 or or, or sort of uproot all all the filth and the corruption in the system um, from the ground up and rebuild. However, there are people like you, Jason, and you, Matthew, and Michaela, and, and numerous others, both candidates and activists and organizers, who I have so much respect for and who are trying from a place of principle to make a difference and to make this world a better place. So, you know, whether or not you think, okay, electoralism is not the answer, it's got to be direct action, whatever you can, you, it can be a combination of a lot of different things. But I still think it's critically important, certainly for me at this stage of my political career, after you know, nearly a quarter century in politics, to highlight people like Matthew and Jason, Michaela, and, and others who will, who will be coming on you know, uh, on, on direct left to talk about their races, because if there were <laughs> principled people like them running this country and representing the people of this country, it would be in a much better place. So I just want to say thank you to everybody listening. Thank you to everybody who listens to this once it's in podcast form and online. Uh, thank you, Matthew and Jason, for being here. Leela, thank you for moderating. I appreciate you all. So we're going to wrap. Thank you so much.
2: Always appreciate it, Peter. Thank you. And Leela.
0: All right. Have a great evening, everybody. Take care.
2: Thanks Thanks so much.
0: All right. Take care. Bye-bye.